0: Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology, and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Okasanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis, and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Ocasania. Hi
1: there, welcome to Retirementals. I am truly, truly excited about my guest today. Mark Pitcher is the managing partner of Alter Wealth. Alter, Alter. I'm not really sure how you pronounce this, but uh, <laughs> and and Matt is a big, big user of Timeline and and Betafolio. So I am thrilled to have Matt on the podcast today. Matt, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So. You are, um, in my view, one of these rebel advisors uh, that I, that is doing just fascinating stuff uh, with their business within our pro- profession, one that I believe is, is worthy of um, emulation. So before we dive into all of that, do you want to give us a little bit of an intro um, into how you got into the industry and your... Um, you know, your journey, the journey that led to the creation of um, outer wealth management.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I fell into the industry, which I think is the common um, common story for most advisors. Um, and I ended up spending 15 years with a, a big national firm, uh, Tauri Law, as it was originally. Um, and we had about 200 advisors. Um, over the course of those 15 years, I progressed through the firm, ended up as one of the four senior partners. Um, and we were an acquirer um, for a long time, for, for many of those years, uh, which was great fun, actually, and got to see loads of different firms and, and looked at different solutions and propositions and, and software along the way. Um, and then we were acquired um, after the, at the end of those 15 years, which it turns out is less fun than being the acquirer um so at that that time i took the opportunity took my my cash um and and went off had a bit of time off um and then set up Altor with a clean sheet of paper so yeah it's it's a fairly um fairly standard story um i'm afraid but um but an enjoyable enjoyable one along the way and the last five years um running out or have been fantastic very different experience to working in a big national firm
1: Interesting stuff. So I'm interested to unpack uh, some of your v- views on, um, you know, on the consolidation side of things. But before we get into that, so tell us about Alto today, about the firm, the clients, give us some metrics, give us a sense of where the business is today.
2: Yeah, so Alto, so five years in, we're seven, uh, a team of seven. Uh, so we've got three advisors at the moment. Um, We've got one trainee advisor, and she actually is doing her CII apprenticeship, um, advisor apprenticeship, so she'll come to the end of that uh, in the spring next year, so we'll be four advisors. Um, We've probably got capacity to take on a fifth, so we're actively looking at the moment. Um, In in terms of clients, so we're about 110 uh, core clients. Um, We advise 50 children of clients. We might come on and and talk about that a bit later on in terms of how the proposition runs. so looking, looking after about two thirds, one third sort of core clients and and their family, so they, their younger family members, uh, we're responsible for about um, three hundred and twenty million um, of assets these days. Um, so you, you can work the numbers in terms of the type of client we tend to work with. Um, broadly, um, our range is sort of seven hundred and fifty thousand to you know the upper end thirteen million. And our average client would have about two and a half million um, in our core service. That would be. Um, So it's fairly standard in many ways. I mean, we don't have a niche um, as a firm as such. People are always talking about niches. I always sort of feel like we should have one, but we haven't got one. Um, I don't know if it counts. I mean, there's one big FTSE 50 company that we work with and we look after all of their senior executives. Um, So XCO down uh, to senior management level. And um, I guess that's a niche. Um, depends how far you you stretch that term.
1: So this this is fascinating then. So uh, you know, average, you know, two point five million AUM, um, you know, hundred families, hundred million per advisor. And if you I don't I don't know if I want to do this, two and a half advisors because you got one of the advisors training. Pretty pretty strong um numbers there. What do you credit for this in terms of the size of clients? I was listening to a podcast the other day um, and, um, you know, one of these very, very regarded industry consultants in the US. And he said that one single thing that some of the best performers um, as as advisors do or fastest growing advisors, however you want to frame it, one of the key distinct... um, um, you know, thing about them is that the average asset per client that they deal with is pretty high. And I will put yours in the th- top 10 percentile, um, if not even five or 10. So in terms of IFA, so w- what do you credit for this? Did you just go after these clients uh, tell us the secret um, <laughs>
2: yeah so <clears throat> I think it's probably I think it's probably a couple of things to be honest um, the three advisors that we have at the moment are all very experienced 15 20 um, 30 year experience in in right. the profession <clears throat> I think that's relevant because um, over time working uh, for a bigger firm with a big name um, with access to um, to some um, some very wealthy clients, ones that have built up with us actually over the years. Um, it, that's part of the success, absolutely. Um, for the clients that have joined us more recently, actually, we we have a lot of clients that find us. Um, we keep our marketing very low-key. Um, our website's quite hard to find deliberately because we're not a volume business um, by any any stretch of the imagination. Um, wow. And extraordinarily, prospects still find us um, in in quite reasonable numbers for us as a firm, which is why we're having to take on new advisors to, to service those clients. And we've got a different model. So we work on a flat fee basis and I think that is very attractive to um, clients with larger portfolios. And we've had several prospects that have actually sought us out deliberately because they've Googled, you know, flat flat fee advice or I don't want to pay a percentage, you know, I don't know what they're putting into the to Google to to get us, but they're they're ending up with us because they're looking for a different model for how they receive their advice. Um, And so I I think that probably does make us very attractive to that sort of um, client. Because we're flat fee, it does mean that we are, um, we probably have a narrower band of people that we could work with anyway. So we are too expensive for a lot of mainstream clients. And therefore that means that we don't take those clients on. It gives us time to go out and find um, the clients that are in the space that's, appropriate for us. Um, we would refer those prospects on to other flat fee advisors um,
1: who are used to dealing with smaller clients, simpler affairs. So flat fee then let's unpack that. How do you how do you structure that proposition? I, uh, is it, you know, d- does everyone just pay the same, you know, the same, the same flat fee? And what led you down that path? Yeah, so it's a a really good question. I mean,
2: setting up your own firm after 15 years of of having um, advised means you you can genuinely start with a blank piece of paper and and you can say, well, what are the good things um, that I want to replicate? And and actually, what are the bad things from a client's point of view um, that I don't want to replicate or want to avoid? Um, So taking that approach meant that we looked at every part of, of the business and the proposition when we were setting up to say, what do we think is the best thing for a client Um, and on how we got paid, we just felt that offering um, the same service to every client and charging the same amount um, for that service was the way to go. Uh, We have broken it into two service levels. So we just have two within the the range of clients that we look after. Uh, One, uh, which is our our core proposition where we will provide um, pretty much everything advice wise. So obviously um, constant ongoing, cash flow planning and investments, including more esoteric investments, tax led, et cetera, um, and plenty of tax planning. And then a simpler service, which is, is priced at a, a lower price point where um, for clients that don't need that additional tax planning, tax led investments um, and that complexity. So so it's it's the two. So everyone within our um, clients are paying one or other of the fees that we offer um, the only the only diff- We have service wise is where we have clients who want their adult children to access advice, but the adult children can't necessarily afford it. Then our clients um, can pay a third fee effectively for us to advise their adult children. Hence why we've got, you know, a third of Ah. our clients are actually adult children who ordinarily
1: probably wouldn't,
2: um, wouldn't come to us as, as clients without that family connection.
1: And I have heard all these arguments against flat fee, you know, the fact that you're taking risk, um, you know, by, um, you know, by, the, the, the fees doesn't directly correspond with the risk. You know, you could do something with, the, you know, with, you know, a two million pound portfolio um, and, and you get it wrong in terms of taxation and that. Does any of these things crop up um, in your conversation with clients, in how you decide the fee? What's your view on on, on that?
2: No, so i I'll be honest to look, I, you know, mo- most of my good friends are IFAs. That's how sad I am. Um, okay. and, and most of them operate on a percentage basis. So look, you know, a- a each do their own. But for, for me, I can't see the link between the work we do and the value of a client's portfolio, I can't see how that's hmm. fair for me personally. Hmm. You know, if um, it, we do, I do hear that risk argument. I hear that a lot. That gets thrown back at me a lot. But it, it's almost as if we're operating in, in an environment where there isn't professional insurance for what we hmm. do as advisors. Hmm. You know, look, there, there are bigger risks. Inevitably, if you get it wrong on a £10 million portfolio compared with a £1 million portfolio, yes. Um, There are bigger risks. It's going to be a bigger number if you get it wrong. Um, But I I guess there's two points about that. A, we're all insured, um, hopefully without large excesses. So um, you don't really have that. You certainly don't have 10 times the risk um, between those two clients. Um, And and B, why are we, that's a massively negative foot to start out on with a client to say, well, look, you've done well, you've built up 10 times the wealth of this other client. I'm going to charge you ten times as much because there's a chance I'm going to get this wrong. Mm. You know, it's a really odd starting point. Whereas surely we should be saying, "Well, look, what work do you need me to do?" And to be perfectly honest with you, Abraham, some some of the smaller clients, some of the clients with the million-pound portfolio will have much more complex needs. Maybe they're mid-career. You know, maybe they've got all sorts of tax planning, constantly changing careers every couple of years. You know, you've got to deal with employee benefits, protection. There's there's just a whole wealth of things going on for those clients. Whereas potentially actually for the 10 million pound client who's retired. Maybe it's a, there's a lot less work to do actually, um, for that kind of client. And therefore really the, it's about the work that, that needs to be done. Um, so I don't, I'm, I'm afraid I don't buy the risk argument. I mean, I wouldn't, it's, it's, you know, it's not what we do. It's not how we get paid, but I do think the percentage fees come, it, it's a historic anomaly, really. We've, we control the money, um we've always done it that way. And it's sort of the path of least resistance. Um, all the research suggests that clients don't um, or, or very rarely convert um, mentally uh, percentage fees into a pounds and pence number. Right. And, you know, for, for us, the conversations we're having every time um, we're interacting with a client, um, it's always about the work we've done and justifying fees, because the fees are very obvious. I know we've we've all got um, fee disclosure these days. So every client should know it. But I bet if you went through most clients and asked them, what are you paying um, for a percentage based advisor, they wouldn't be able to tell you in pounds and pence, however good the fee disclosure is. So, yeah, so so I, I'm afraid I have a bit of an issue with it. Now, um, hear me in that I, I spent 15 years being a, a percentage based <laughs> advisor. So I, I am not squeaky clean on this at all. Um, you know, and, you um, so my history would suggest otherwise but um but we we believe it's the right thing to do now we get really good feedback from clients about it um although they do find it painful
1: um because we're always talking in in pound costs rather than percentages that's 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 really helpful thank you and i like the the humility um that that you approach this is is um you know is heartwarming right so then let's Let's go over to you know investment proposition, right? So, t- tell us how you you approach the the investment proposition. You mentioned you know you mentioned earlier on that you have you know esoteric investments to you use your word for for some of the clients. How, how do you approach this? Is there a centralized investment proposition or central you know service and then um, other things added depending on client's needs?
2: Um, so I maintain there's, there's there's a couple of people that argue with me, but I maintain that we don't have a centralized investment proposition. Um, right. So, so there are days where I wish we did, frankly, because it would <laughs> be a lot easier for us um, as the advisor. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a big one for making the advisor's job easier um, if it means not doing the right thing for the client. Um, I, I know it sounds a bit holier than than now, but, you know, a lot of clients come to us and they have their own um they have their own views they have their own um desires as to what they want to do and and look if those if those views are really wacky, then we will tell a client and we're very happy to debate with a client if we think they're going off on some mad scheme but um a lot of the clients we deal with are actually from financial services but it's just different right. bits of financial services um, although we do have some advisors that we advise actually um and so we're very happy to work with a client to build a portfolio, a completely bespoke portfolio for them um, with their input. We've got those clients on on one extreme. On the other extreme, we've got clients who just say, "Look, you guys know what you're doing. Um, you know, they give recommend the best thing for me." Um, and so we we have a, a broad range of investment solutions, but. Um, if, you, if you looked at sort of that usual bell curve distribution, the guys in the middle, they're going to be largely on a platform. Um, they're going to have um, some low cost access to global markets um, in the most efficient way we can buy it for them. Um, that might be a model portfolio service. It, you know, it might be a, a, a multi-asset fund, dare I say it, a, a Vanguard life strategy. <laughs> um, but a, a, a lot of them will have a, uh, some kind of MPS service around that. Um, depending on their preferences. Um, so there might be some active um, active MPS, Model Portfolio Service, and there might be ethical if that's their particular desire or social impact investing, um, you know, but that's more of a satellite approach. So we would have, tend to have satellite themes around a core passive approach that's buying, buying market returns. Well, what I will say, I mean, on, on the fixed fee side, when we set up five years ago, we would ask every single investment manager Right. Will you offer us a fixed, a flat fee option? Um, and most of them said, well, no, that's crazy. Why would we do that? We make more money on a percentage. Why would we ever do it? Um, and we kept saying to them, you know, again, with our example of a million and 10 million, you don't have to ever know the client. You're just going to give us a fun template um, mm. that will be applied on a platform. Why Why would our client at a million pay you 0.2% a year and, and at 10 million pay you 0.2? You, you are doing... You've no additional risk in their case. I mean, it's even more crazy, in my opinion, than um, than advisors operating in right, of right. basis It's absolutely nuts. Um, and five years ago, there, there, you know, there were a few that we found, and we were happy once we'd done the due, due diligence, and and even some bespoke managers that would operate on a, on a flat fee basis, but not many. But there are more and more, and that's really encouraging for me. Five years down the line, you know, there are um, there are many more than than we started with five years ago. Obviously, Beastfolio being one of one of those, um, which is is really exciting for us because actually for our clients, our typical client, the more that can be paid for on a flat fee, the more efficient their portfolio is going to be, the better their net returns. So the better a job we're doing for the client.
1: And you know, before our call, I was looking at the pace at which you're onboarding assets, portfolio, and and I was thinking to myself. Gosh, I better, get, I better get in touch with Matt to see what's going on here because, you know, the, the pace, um, you know, is, is very strong in, in our view. So thank you for that. I guess the, the question I wanted to ask then is, so you're dealing with very wealthy clients. Uh, the core of the portfolio proposition is low-cost capital market, Um, yes, you know, you would have maybe, I assume, you know, some sort of EIS, um, type product if, if, if that's needed for the client, but do you get pushback from clients on this? Like, you know, I've had all sorts of arguments, uh, you know, uh, low cost is too low cost. (laughs) It's too simple. Or uh, do you get pushback from clients on on these, on these things or no?
2: Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, we do from clients. I mean, if, if you look at the marketing budgets um, in financial services, right. the big spend is the bigger, big active managers. Those are the big billboards <laughs> at Waterloo Station, you know, whilst right. everyone's waiting to, to board their trains. I mean, they're not in the same numbers anymore, but they certainly did do. Um, and so clients do absorb that. You know, we're, we're humans, we're susceptible to marketing. If we weren't, then uh, companies wouldn't spend so much on it. Um, and so that... That kind of message is in a lot of our clients minds at the back of the mind, you know, what if I could do better? What if I could beat the market or what if I could invest with someone that can beat the market? And and look, you know, we the active managers we use are um, at at best, I would say, level pegging with markets and with their passive Mm, equivalents. mm. Um, We don't have any that are that are tracking below at the moment. But we all know, um, all of those of us that are in the know know that all the academic um, literature says that actually you you can't outperform markets, and and it amazes me that firms continue to pretend otherwise. Actually, um, on the advice side, less so on the fund manager side, because that's you know, you know they'd be um, they'd be destroying their own business model if they did. But um, we we recently took on a, a client of. Of a well-respected mid-sized firm, um, you know, big um, breadth and depth of um, of, of bench of, of professionals on their investment side, right? And you you look through the portfolio, and it's it's all the funds that are top performing, um, have been top performing in their sector, all first quartile, all five star rated, but it's all it's all backwards looking, <laughs> so the all their clients are getting is everything that's done well in the last 3 years yeah now we we know because the the research tells us that those funds are the most likely to mean revert and underperform over the next 3 years um but they're relying on being able to cycle out before that becomes apparent to the clients and just constantly cycling into the next best thing but you're always cycling from you know what hasn't performed very well because it was you know, you didn't catch it in time. You didn't catch it before it performed. You're selling The yeah. next thing, which isn't good. At, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you're just constantly turning over the portfolio. So it leads to a really interesting conversation actually with clients. And, and, and there is a place for active management. If you, if, if clients have particular themes that they want to pursue, um, then very often active is the way to go for that. But, um, it would tend to be driven by a client's preferences if, if we were to, to build those on a satellite um, satellite positions.
1: Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. There are not many flat fee retainer-based uh, model portfolio services out there. Um, w- w- why is Bitfolio pioneering this
0: approach? I think we're more than a flat fee model portfolio service. We're a true investment partner. We're offering a full investment service to advisors and, and taking it to a, a deeper level. We don't just want to push a button and send an investment template. We're, we're building technology and processes so that we can support advisors at the individual client level with client portfolios on real practical issues like cash management and decumulation and, and, you know, lots of other areas that are associated with actually implementing a financial plan rather than just providing a, a model portfolio. So that's where I see us as, as being pioneering and perhaps taking the MPS Products to a, to a new new level.
2: Thank
1: you very much, Nikki. So let's talk about technology. I know you're a you're a big uh, technology user and a rebel technology user because I was talking to you a while back and I said, "Well, what's your CRM?" And then you went, "Well, we built our own." So I'm interested in a start with what your tech stack looks like today and tell us a little bit of a story of what you've done with this uh, CRM. I don't want to use the term back office, but off you go. <laughs> yeah, so,
2: I mean, if we're the rebel, I guess the the evil empire would have been the, um, the CRM and, and back office and client portal <laughs> software that we were using before. So we did, look, you know, when you get started, when you're building a firm, you work with what's available at the time. Um, so you go with all the, all the leading um, tech and 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 you build out the the tech stack from there, right? So uh, we adopted one of the, the major players in in the CRM market. And, and within a very short space of time, we were hitting up against problems. It's, it was built on pretty old technology. Um, it was ugly, it was hard to work with, it was just a constant daily frustration. Um, and we looked around. I mean, I'd done a lot of work um, for my previous firm um, around CRMs and around cash flow uh, planning software. And we we'd looked at had all sorts of firms come in and present, and we'd looked at lots of different solutions. And in the end, um, we just felt that actually we were going to be going really frying pan to fire um, on this on the CRM client portal side. We couldn't find anything where we could sufficiently bespoke it for our clients that we were happy um, that. That it was going to be something that we were going to be proud of ultimately. Um, so we thought, well, let's, that, let's build our own. How how hard can that be, right? Um, starting software from scratch um, with a small team <laughs> um, with with a day job to do at the same time. Um, yeah. So so we had a bit of a misstep initially. We picked the wrong software provider. Um, they produced something that um, went into uh, beta testing with a few select clients, and and we picked our select clients who were. IT security professionals, <laughs> unfortunately, right. they, they picked they picked our first version absolutely <laughs> apart. So we they had to, that was, yeah. that was cash burn, that was cash burn, you know, we had to just walk away from that. Um, but the current provider we're with um, is really good. They've built something for us, which, um, you know, release one was as good as the uh, software we were paying huge amounts for previously. And then every release that we keep, um, we keep pushing out. We keep upgrading and upgrading that to the point now where it's it's light years ahead of what we did have. And we've still got loads and loads of plans for it. Um, it it's not cheap, but actually, to be honest, with what we were paying to our previous big um, supplier, it's it's no more expensive than, than that. Um, so it's, it's something we're very happy with. It's a light touch CRM. It provides our clients with a client portal. We have very much built it from the client side. So we've built all the client functionality first so they can go in, do secure messaging, share documents with us. Um, They can fill in a fact find online. Um, All of their um, asset values are pulled through on a daily basis and and presented back to them in what we think is a nice format. Um, They can run um, performance numbers or they will be able to soon uh, once we've cracked some of these um, poor APIs you get from some of the platforms. Um, They'll be able to run their own performance numbers. But importantly, we also wanted the financial planning to be front and center of that portal as well. So we built a section in there where um, we can replay their cash flow um, results to them. So we're, we're really happy with the outcome. Um, as, as you all know, obviously always with software, you st- you embark on something and then other people come into the market with other propositions, um, not not thinking of anyone in particular. And- <laughs> start developing functionality you know timeline functionality some of that is is getting to the point now where we're looking at it and going oh okay well that that looks better than what we're doing so so maybe we where's the trade-off here do we drop some of what we're doing and and, um and so that we're not duplicating essentially so Mm. i mean the wonderful thing about being in software is nothing stands still um except the dinosaurs who are going to get wiped out um and and look it's not just crms in, in financial services there's data analytics software there's cash flow software that have captured large market share and they they're the incumbents and they're profitable and they're entirely relying on not having to develop their proposition they're but, evil empires yeah <laughs> exactly they are they are all the the evil empire they're just multiple ones and and that business model relies on advisors not ever bothering to change software provider right. and, and and it's a huge upheaval to Mm, change software mm. provider, And some of these guys make it really difficult to leave. Um, We had to pay our our old CRM provider. We had to pay them to extract our own data, our own client data. Yeah, we we had to pay them to, um, for them to give us our data back, um, which is extraordinary as a business model goes. Um, But the the danger for all those firms is that if they don't develop and they don't improve and innovate, someone else will come along and, and eat their lunch so there's it's an exciting time. I don't know how you feel, but in in fintech at the moment, it feels like quite an exciting time. Lots of people trying different things i I don't think all of it's going to work to be honest, but um there's lots of people trying, and that's great. That's a great ecosystem for advisors actually at the moment
1: yeah, absolutely i I couldn't agree anymore with 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 your assessment of you know where advisor tech has been, you know, we have all these, in my view, legacy systems that were built literally 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you know, they weren't built for the current world that we live in. And the entire business model is predicated on um, making it incredibly difficult for advisors, you know, to move. Uh, And, you know, in the early days of timeline, we spent a lot of time one thing we 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 didn't set out timeline to you know replace or even compete, frankly, with any tool. Right, the timeline was originally meant to just be you know a decumulation engine, and we spent you know best part of a year, over a year actually, trying to integrate to all these other tools, you know, because advisors were telling us, well, you know, I I like timeline, but it doesn't talk to my you know, to my cash flow or other things that I did. So we said, Okay, fine, we'll take on that challenge. And we go we go integrate with them. (laughs) And this is just completely, it's a mess, you know, many of them don't have API's, Um, the ones that have API's really, um, it's not very good, right. So we we went 100% um, sort of in a different direction. And we said, you know, sod it we're going to do this we're now going to evolve timeline to a point where we replace three four five different pieces of technology so we we introduce the the fact find the cash flow you know the portfolio analytics on on beta and um yeah i am i am really excited about where we take this and i'm really excited about um the stuff that you've done because that Back office, uh, your CRM client portal is suddenly an area that we haven't touched. We don't have a short term, um, you know, plan to. But I, I'm, I'm really, uh, really interested in how what you do um, evolve or what you've done evolve. Um, I see a couple of firms who are taking uh, the way I like to put it, taking their own sort of future in their own hands. You guys are one our friends over at Wealth, i'm sure you know these guys uh, yeah yep. yeah yeah no, those guys but, well. you know there there are others and i know that um i forget his name now uh the chap at cold potato uh you know is, uh, gareth is, uh, gareth thompson gareth, gareth is is building something um in that space so uh, keen to support and to help in any any ways that any way that we can. All right, we'll see how that evolves. So let's let's bring this back home. One of the big questions that I really wanted to get your opinion on is uh, this is in two dimensions. This big trend towards consolidation, right? You know, every time I pitch VCs, you know, which I've done uh, quite a lot in recent days, you know, everyone says to me, all these people say to me. Um, aren't, you know, small independent firms being acquired by or being sucked into um, you know, large consolidators um, you know, like um, the one you've come out of, you know, Tauri, SJP, um, all that stuff. So A, I want to get your your views on this, right? Do you... uh, I guess you, you 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 must see a future in small independent firms um you know running their own business taking control of their own um, destiny if you like um, versus these big consolidators that are gobbling everything up where where do you see this um you know this trend going
2: yeah so i've I've been on both both sides of this um and when when I was involved in um, in, in buying up firms, in, in being the consolidator, um, <laughs> our, our experience very often was that you would, you'd pay a lot of money for firms and you would gain um, the advisors and the clients as a result. You'd try to um, mould uh, their proposition into yours or you try and change their proposition into your proposition. Right. And most times what would happen would be the best, most entrepreneurial, most new business focused advisors would walk away. And would, right. And they'd right. Something new. <laughs> Normally after they you know taken their payout or their cash or, or yes. whatever the deal was. Yes. Um, and what you'd keep is you'd keep the um, more average advisors and, and the more average to the smaller clients. And the problem with the big consolidators is actually, um, which I, I don't think is, is well known, particularly from the firms that invest in them, is what you end up with is this ever-growing tale of unprofitable clients. So I know the finances of some of those big consolidators, and some of them have got horrible looking finances mm. where no one ever takes away from them the small client. Mm. You know, They mm. lose teams mm. of advisors. But those teams of advisors never come back and take away the small client and these firms have had to ramp up their charges and ramp up their charges and in some cases taking three percent a year um, in in sort of total vertically integrated costs from these clients and they're still losing money and if you look at the breakdown of their clients by volume they've now got more clients in that loss making space than they mm. have in their core um, core client space and frankly the only way that they're Keeping those clients on board is by cross subsidizing them with their bigger clients, charging their bit of bigger clients where there are big profit margins to be had on a percentage basis, and that's cross subsidizing that that smaller client base, and that's that's a real issue because actually what you are doing, consolidators very very often are averaging down the quality of their book um, all the time, because mm-hmm. you lose your top guys, your top guys take take the top most profitable clients, you're constantly averaging down your the, the quality of, of um, of the client base that you're looking after and then it becomes a numbers game right so then you cut service uh, levels because you can't afford to service those clients um, profitably so so that was my own experience I mean my experience doesn't doesn't go industry wide I'm sure there's some consolidators out there who say they were doing a brilliant job. Um, but actually what you what you then get is you get some really good guys who have set up businesses. Small business, small to medium sized businesses, typically strong team, you know, often they'll take take a team of people with them. You had a really focused proposition, you know, um, fairly narrow uh, client profile. Um, And and those are the guys, frankly, that are out there doing the innovative stuff, either on the investment side or um, or or the planning side or the tech side, whatever it is. and we, t- we, to a degree, I would consider us to be one of those. But, uh, you know, I know you have several that have um, teams of people that have come out of the big firms that have built some really good, great propositions, um, very client centric, very client focused, very compliant, you know, doing the right thing um, and really high quality advice and high quality adv- adv- advisors. And I think that's, you know, all the story is about consolidation, consolidation. And that is clearly the trend if you look at the numbers. But I think actually, if you look at what's sort of quietly dropping out um, in, in the sort of exhaust of, of some of those big consolidation exercises, there's some really good firms. And I don't think, I don't think ultimately um, the small IFA firm is going to die off. Um, we're, we're still in, in the majority, I believe, last time I looked yeah. at the number um so there's still a huge huge part of the market that that's in that space um and that's a huge market to serve um, if you can get it right and and there's some very passionate people there i mean some you know I, some people who are passionate about some things that I wouldn't necessarily agree with them on but they <laughs> yeah, tend to yeah. be very committed very passionate about what they're doing you don't see that kind of passion typically when you're you're talking to people who are working for the big firms
1: absolutely it's it's incredible and and i think that you know when when i was talking to all these you know sort of vcs out, outside of our industry you know i i wish i i had the, the 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 explanation that you just gave and the way i ultimately got around this you know obviously getting you know with with your help is to say well yes you can see the trend the trend of consolidation is easier to see the trend, the more important trend that you don't see is the breakaway, right? The breakaways, the the, the you know, the, the, the mats or the altars of, of this world, the Rockwells of this world, all these guys who are running incredibly successful firms, who are breaking away from, you know, these large empires and, and running their own show. And, um, you know, so I said, you know, go speak to some of them, right, and, and let's compare notes. Um, And that's why you had a few of them knock on your doors. Um, The the other corollary to this is to say, well, how do you compete, right? How do you compete with big brand name firms who have lots of professionals and experts, you know, frankly, for every different part of, of advice? Uh, How do you, how do you compete? And you've done this very well, Um, you know, even for larger clients, right? Because the idea is, or the general assumption is that firms, sorry, clients with larger portfolios will go walk with big firms because if i'm a you know as i am um you know if i've got five million liquid portfolio and i go to um outer wealth down the road and they've got i don't know 50 million in assets i'm going to be 10 percent of their asset whereas if i go to i don't know sjp or whatever tower how how do you compete with these large firms for for you know, large clients, let's say?
2: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it, it's a really good question, although the one thing that um, is missing in that is what clients we are used to dealing with compared with mm. what some of these big firms are used to dealing with. So we've just won a, a client um, who who is, well, quite a way above our average, but we've won him from a much bigger firm than our firm, you know, five, six times the assets under management. But in reality, as an individual, he was the biggest advi- um biggest client of the particular advisor he was dealing with. Right. So, right. because we're used to um, the advice needs of a, of a client of their size, then we are talking their language. Very often, we're talking about the sort of problems they're worrying about, the sort of advice they need. We've got the experience of the um, slightly, um, slightly more complex tax planning that you you sometimes require when you're dealing with large multi-million pound estates um, and <clears throat> these firms can be big but they can be big with thousands and thousands of mid-sized clients and I still find it extraordinary some of these big firms you look at their average client mm. um, you know we sometimes get these industry publications through don't we that shows total asset, assets under management total number of advisors total clients and some of these big firms you look at the average client they're dealing with and it, it must be really simple day-to-day work nine to five because these clients surely, you know, it's a, it must be a couple of ices and maybe a pension and <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot to do, is there Abraham? To be honest, there's not a lot to do. Um, and these are volume businesses look that, you know, we are not, we would not be able to compete with those big companies on volume. Right. That's why we don't, we, you know, we, don't market cause we don't need to, but there's no way we could ever compete with them from a marketing perspective. Um, but we're, we're not a volume business, so we don't need to, um, you know, we have a, cup, a cap on the number of uh, clients that each advisor looks after, which is, again, why we're having to bring new, new talent through. Um, and that's so that we're giving a brilliant service to, um, to these clients. But we, we bring something that uh, you'd have to go to the very top of the advisor bases in these big firms to get to and getting to those guys is, is pretty impossible um, for most clients.
1: Incredible stuff. So as as we begin to, uh, you know, wrap this up, um, I guess my question for you is, where do you take this? You know, 300, 350 million in AUM, three advisors, pretty solid um, figures and practice and business. You know, you look, to me, like you're in your twenties, maybe thirties. <laughs> oh, you liar! <laughs> you liar! <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: it's a, it, it's a, it's a really good question. Look, we, um, my my partners, um, so we're we're structured as a partnership. We're not structured for sale. We don't intend to sell ourselves. Um, the the debate amongst the three partners is well, why why are we not bringing the shutters down? Why are we still open to new business?
1: Hmm.
2: Um, we're we're a bit different as a firm. So we when we set up, we said, look, we'll. Um, let's be, let's be ballsy when it comes to what, what we do to give back. Um, so we said from the outset that we were going to give 10% of our gross revenue. Um, so 10% of, of the first lot of income that comes in, goes straight out to our sister foundation. And frankly, that's the, that's the only reason why we're growing. So, you know, our revenue is about a million now. So we're, we're pushing sort of 125,000 a year out to our, our, um, sister foundation. The outdoor Foundation, um, and and that's more motivational on a day to day basis for myself and the partners um, to be. And it's a lot. It's there's a lot of fun to be had actually in, in running a small foundation and being able to um, give grants to various good causes. So that's the reason why we're growing it still because we we can have a real impact. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, we love our clients to bits. But ultimately, when I hear other advisors saying, you know um, it's, it's the good we do. Um, we we need to be a little bit careful and a little bit more humble about what we do. You know, we're dealing with the wealthiest percentage of the population in the country. Mm. We mm. are engaged in tax planning. We're trying to grow portfolios. We are not social enterprises. You know, we, we, we need to be honest. We need to be honest about what it is we do for a living, really. Um, And, and look, so, you know, so for us personally, and this is not, I'm not judging, judging anyone here, but for us personally, you know, we need to be giving back. Um, Ultimately, our plan is that we are developing um, sort of the next generation of advisors. We, we're not poaching, we're trying to grow talent from within the business. Um, And our hope sincerely is that they will replace us as partners, you know, at the point at which our advising faculty start to fail, which hopefully might be. 10 or 15 years off um but we're hoping ge- genuinely they'll come up through um they'll buy into partnership will exit partnership as you would expect with a you know any professional other professional sense. firm yeah yeah absolutely yeah. So, so this is what the lawyers do is what the accountants do this is this is how a partnership works and the amount of advice businesses that are being built for sale um you know again i, I i'm personal friends with a lot of these guys but you know you the conversation on the side of the football pitch is not about what they're doing for the clients. It's about how many more years until they can sell themselves to someone else, um, and what their target uh, sale price is. And we're not about that. Um, you know, look, that's that's part of my. Uh, it's going to have to be part of my retirement planning, getting slowly bought out to partnership. But that's that's how the other professions operate. I, d- I don't know why we're so obsessed with growing and selling, growing and selling um, in this business
1: fascinating stuff which is a really good segue into how does a managing partner of a wealth management firm financial planning firm plans you know his own family's retirement tell us give us an insight into um you know picture family retirement plan
2: uh yeah so um, it's very vanilla i don't know if that's a if that's a good thing or a bad thing but um I guess, so one of the frustrations as a tax planner is very often by the time we're dealing with a a husband and wife, um, whichever way round it is, there's very often a disparity in the assets one or other has got, particularly pensions. Um, And as a tax planner, I find that incredibly frustrating because it means I can't maximize the income tax allowances. And, you know, and and, and once you get to that stage, you, you can't unwind it once you've built up more of a pension. Um, so myself and my wife we have a pension each. Um, we've stopped contributing to mine, so we're contributing to hers to try and get her up to up to parity. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think we can get there actually. I think we've got long enough. Well, I think we can get there. Um, so it's, it's standard couple of sips. She made me set up an ISA. Um, you know what they say about cobblers' children going unshod. You know us advisors generally <laughs> pretty bad at looking after our own our own affairs. So she runs um, she runs the finances. Um, my son, whilst I was in the middle of my MiFID to 10% notifications, that I was having to send out in January last year to cause markets were falling. And we were having to constantly email and phone every client to tell them their portfolio was down by 10% because the regulator thought that was a brilliant idea. Um, yeah. he, he had the bright idea that his, he'd invest his ISA, um, in Vanguard, uh, ESG, um, all world developed, um yeah uh fund so he's done the best out of all of us in the family um because he got his he got his timing right he's he's the market timer out of the family so yeah so it's it's the standard things we'd recommend to all clients Abraham, to be honest it's it's the, the standard um tax planning um as a family because i'm uh, deeply conscious i don't want my teenagers developing into um 20 somethings that are going to end up hating their dad for his investment choices we are entirely um, invested in uh, the minimum ESG screened, but social impact right. investing uh, with EQ investors in London actually is the biggest part of our overall portfolio. So there's, um, yeah, the, the biggest weightings to social impact um, in there. Interesting. And then, and then of course it's the staff coming up and, and you know, right. buying us out. Hopefully at some point um, that'll, uh, that'll hopefully um, add a bit.
1: Good stuff. Uh, Mark Peacher. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom and uh, for the good work you do. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you, Abraham, for all the work you're doing um, in uh,
2: in financial services as as well. It is gratefully received by those of us who are desperate for some tech that works. Um, So thank you.
1: I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together led by my producer Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline app, the retirement planning software and Portfolio, the high-tech, low-cost flat fee model portfolio manager. And you, our listeners, Thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is AbrahamOnMoney. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.